Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Church, we are beginning tonight a new worship series. It's called The Shape of Shalom. And we're gonna be reading over the next several weeks from the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, passages that represent big, 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 big themes, meta-themes, things that God gives a lot of attention to through God's prophets, God's big meta-plans for humanity and for the world and indeed the cosmos that God still loves. The prophets are the voices for God describing the present. This, you know, that's mostly what prophets do, is describe the present. They say, this is what I see because God has shown me and now I wanna show it to you. They speak truth to power. They speak truth about power. And then, having shown what there is to be seen about what's happening now, prophets go into describing the future. Not so much like a magical prediction of something that might happen if you hold your mouth just right, but rather a future that God dreams about. A future in which God gets everything God wants. What is that like, the prophets are asking us to ask. What is that like? And can we see it too if the prophets point it out to us? And, and if our eyes can be opened to this possibility of God's imagined future, how then are we meant to live today in light of that future that is coming? And so we'll begin tonight uh, following Lane's reading from Jeremiah with a reading from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 7 and 15 through 18. See, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a covert from the tempest, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who have sight will not be closed, and the ears of those who have hearing will listen. The minds of the rash will have good judgment, and the tongues of stammerers will speak readily and distinctly. A fool will no longer be called noble, nor a villain said to be honorable. For fools speak folly, and their minds plot iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. The villainies of villains are evil. They devise wicked devices to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right until, until a spirit 
from on high is poured out on us and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. The effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was a kid out in the panhandle of Texas, one of the summer jobs you could get was spraying cotton. You showed up early in the morning with a bunch of other kids, and if you were lucky, you got a place in a row of six metal seats welded to an attachment on the back of a tractor. If you were super lucky, your seat had an umbrella welded overhead to offer a little shade on days like today. The tractor also carried a huge tank of herbicide, which had hoses snaking out of it. And each kid in each of those metal seats got a hose with a little trigger. And as the tractor made its way through the rows of cotton, you squeezed the trigger to squirt a little bit of poison on each little weed that you saw in your row of cotton. The cotton, of course, was genetically engineered not to respond to the poison. The kids were not. I don't have a big dramatic plot twist for that story. My little brother actually is the only one of us kids who ever sprayed cotton in the summers and he seems fine. But I'm telling you this because it illustrates something that I hope you can hear about this worship series that we're getting into and about the prophetic voices we'll be listening to from scripture over these next several weeks. And this is it. The dominant narrative about farming, where and when I grew up, is that chemicals make better crops, and better crops are better for everybody. It's the story everybody told. It's the story everybody believed. It was not until I was older, quite a bit older, and out of the Texas panhandle, for good, please God, for good, and paying more attention that I could hear the counter-narrative about farming, that the chemicals are poisoning more than we intend them to, including your neighbor's crops that might not be genetically modified to resist, including the soil itself for generations to come, including our own bodies, not just the kids squirting the stuff and breathing this stuff from the back of the tractor, but really all of us everywhere as more and more agriculture depends on more and more chemicals, more and more genetic modification to resist more chemicals. And maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't be doing that to ourselves and each other and generations to come and the planet itself. Dominant narrative, chemicals make better crops demonstrably true, the way the world works, economically smart and successful, etc. Counter-narrative, maybe not. 
Maybe there are better ways, different ways science could help us feed and clothe the human family without poisoning the very ground we tread. Maybe there are more ethical and equitable patterns of consumption and distribution that could help us make do with less so that everybody gets enough and nobody gets too much, etc. But the counter-narrative is impossible to prove because it's so hard to find enough cooperation to try. Tiny little organic farms struggle to make ends meet. Organic fruits and vegetables cost way more and don't look as good. The counter-narrative is always a minority report. It's always a narrative of faith and hope that looks surprisingly like naivete. And importantly, the counter-narrative is always in the position of being a narrative of resistance against the dominant narrative. So tonight, we're beginning a worship series designed to call out the dominant narratives that have so much mind share in our culture that we hardly even notice them. And our worship will be designed to shore up the counter narratives that we believe we're called to celebrate as children of God and followers of Jesus. To be clear, God is a counter narrative. In so many ways, in so many of our stories, the God of our ancestors in faith is remembered and represented as a zag where there should have been, according to the dominant narrative, a zig. See Israel, a ragtag bunch of no-account nomads named after an unlikable ancestor who literally wrestled God to the ground and bullied a blessing for himself and his descendants. Remember Jacob? Who then became the carriers, this little band of no-name nomads, the carriers of God's promised salvation for the whole damn family. See also, Jesus, a poor Palestinian Jew with questionable parentage, born under the boot of empire, rejected hard by his own kin, executed as an enemy of the state, also known as the savior of the world. See also you, quirky, queer, chronically anxious, and slightly or deeply depressed since the early 2000s, shining like the sun with an undeniable dose of the Holy Spirit of the living Christ that makes you more beautiful than most people can see. Because you and your presence here are a counter narrative, an act of resistance against the dominant narrative about humanity in relationship with God and with each other. And counter narratives are something not everybody has eyes to see or ears to hear or hearts to appreciate. So we read scriptures tonight from two of God's prophets, a responsive reading from Jeremiah, a longer reading from Isaiah, and in both cases, they are pounding on a dominant narrative that they believe has to die. <laughs> Jeremiah says it like this, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now this 
is a theme that runs throughout the biblical prophets, not just Jeremiah. This is God's voice for our ancestors and for us. Repeatedly, they say that the people entrusted with the care of God's people, the prophets, the priests, the religious leaders who should have your best interest at heart, they have not been telling you the truth. They can see that you are hurt, that you are broken and bruised, but they do not take the potentially painful steps required for healing. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, God says. Instead of caring for the wound, they just keep saying the same thing, that everything's fine, just fine, shh, 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 don't worry your pretty little head about it, hush little baby, don't say a word, Papa's gonna buy you a mockingbird. They say, peace, peace, where there is no peace, 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 everything's all right now, everything's fine. This is the dominant narrative perpetuated by leaders who are so invested in the status quo that they cannot let you want anything else. Or, if we listen to Isaiah's voice, the dominant narrative sounds like this. Fools are called noble, and villains are said to be honorable. But fools, Isaiah says, speak folly. Their minds plot iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and deprive the thirsty of drink. The villainies of villains are evil. They devise wicked devices to ruin the poor with lying words. Even when the plea of the needy is right. The dominant narrative says that poverty is your own damn fault. And that's just the way this system works. And the hungry and thirsty can be ignored without consequence to the rest of us. And even if it is a ruinous lie told to us by people higher up the ladder than we are, we probably should also confess that it's a pretty little lie. It's a dominant narrative that I enjoy and participate in because it takes the pressure off of me to do anything different to take responsibility for anything other than my own satiation and comfort. That dominant narrative shuts our ears to the plea of the needy. Because, I mean, it's just so easy. Because, says the dominant narrative, we're fine. They're fine. Everything's fine. Everyone's fine. Shh, shh, shh. Peace. Peace where there is no peace. And they say, the rioters at the Capitol last year were just exercising their First Amendment right to free speech, demonstrating peaceably with no instigation of violent insurrection from anybody at the top. And they say, the warming of the planet is not a big deal. There's no need to change any of your habits or hope for the world powers to take the science seriously. And they say, guns don't kill people. And they say, we live in a post-racial society, get over it, and so on. The counter-narrative, the way the prophets do it, is not very shh, shh, shh. The counter-narrative is loud. It loudly, insistently points out the holes, the inconsistencies, the lies in the dominant narrative. The counter-narrative says in the first place, no, everything is not fine. 
I mean, it sounds to some people's ears kind of chronically anxious and at least a little bit depressed. Sounds like a story made for us. It's not fine, protest the counter-narrative. It's not fine, I'm not fine. I suspect you're not fine either. The counter-narrative names a fool a fool and a villain a villain. The counter-narrative goes out in 105 degrees to protest the dominant narrative that we have to accept mass shootings at schools and grocery stores and concerts and movie theaters and temples and churches every so often because there's just nothing we can do about it. The counter-narrative says, why can't we? The counter-narrative says, si, se puede. And to the leaders of the people, the counter-narrative says, do your job. And you have treated the wound of God's people carelessly saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Actually, nobody ever writes that last one on a protest sign, but they could. Defying the dominant narrative is not all the counter-narrative does, of course. It's, it's way, way better than that. The counter-narrative sings a new song. It tells a new story. It imagines a new possibility sourced from the minds and spirits that have been flooded with God's own vision for how things could be might be. The counter-narrative has been listening to the voices of the prophets. The counter-narrative has heard them say, yeah, it's ugly like that, the dominant narrative dominating like it does until, until Isaiah 32, 15, until a spirit from on high is poured out on us and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, <laughs> the earth is healing, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect, the effect of all this justice and righteousness will be <gasps> peace, actually. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. And my people, says the Lord, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in quiet resting places. The rest that God dreams for God's people. The dominant narrative dominating until God's own spirit covers the earth and justice springs up in unjust systems and righteousness oozes into every nook and cranny. And when the earth is filled and flooded with God's own way of being so that every place, every place becomes habitable by God's own children, every place safe and sumptuous, the dark and cool of fruitful field and forageable forest where the earth in every place yields what human habitation requires and no one is hungry, and no one is left alone, and no one tries to trick you into believing that everything's fine, because finally, truly, everything is fine for everyone, everywhere, all at once. The effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Thus says the Lord, the author of the counter-narrative of shalom, actual. 
So this is what we're gonna do together over the next several weeks. We're gonna practice discerning the dominant narrative and hearing the counter narrative and learning by heart the song that God has been singing for so long, learning the shape of our shalom. Just like the Pentecost story promised last Sunday, we're gonna see some visions and we're gonna dream some dreams, all of us, all of us together in the co-conspiracy of this beautiful zag where there should have been a zig, our very own piece of the prophetic counter narrative coming to life in this place. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.